Hi, it's Debbie. I'm so excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Uplift Desks. As a therapist, I sit a lot while I work, and if I sit all day, I feel pretty terrible by the end of the day. So I love to change things up by standing sometimes while I'm working at my computer. Whether I'm checking emails or preparing for my next podcast interview, a standing desk helps me stay alert and feel better at the end of the day. Uplift Desks has a terrific selection of standing desks and other office furniture to help you work better and live healthier. You can customize your configuration to your body and your workspace. They offer free shipping, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. And every desk purchase includes a free accessory. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Go to upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Many of the things that we're seeing in our world, political polarization, achievement gaps, extremist behavior, even violence, I think, to some degree, they're symptoms of an underlying cause. And, and that underlying cause is in part a kind of thwarted sense of connection that I think too many Americans have, too many people throughout the world have now. And, uh, you know, once we understand that, there's lots we can do about it. That was Jeffrey Cohen on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Have you ever had that experience where you've gotten cornered by that person on the airplane who just wants to talk your ear off? If you're anything like me, you may feel like you need to grin and be polite, but you should never feel that way when you're talking to your mental health provider. That is where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments online. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual visits, or both, whatever works for you. I love ZocDoc, and I know you will too. So if you want to check it out, go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's ZocDoc.com slash POTC, ZocDoc.com.
dot com slash P-O-T-C. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Do you want to support psychologists off the clock and take good care of your favorite pet at the same time? Whole Life Pet makes single ingredient treats, meal mixers, supplements, and hydrating snacks for both dogs and cats. Use promo code POTC to get 25% off your first order with free shipping over $50 at wholelifepet.com. My dogs, Tilly and Hazel, love the Tuscan Bistro Meal Mixer and the freeze-dried beef liver treats. The freeze-dried process is so cool. It retains up to 98% of the vitamins, minerals, and enzymes naturally occurring in food, which means no preservatives. Visit wholelifepet.com and use promo code POTC to get 25% off your first order with free shipping over $50. If you're unsure about what to try, you can fill out their short questionnaire by clicking the red Start Today button on the home page. It will ask you a few questions and make custom product recommendations for your pets. Visit wholelifepet.com and use promo code POTC to get 25% off. Hi, this is Debbie. I'm here with Yael today to introduce an episode that I have with Jeffrey Cohen, who is talking to us about his book, which is called Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. And Yael and I were both so excited to talk to you about this episode to introduce it that we even just started chatting about it before we hit record. We had to contain ourselves so that we could have some things left over to say in this intro to the episode. Yael, what are are some of your thoughts about the conversation? Well, Debbie, as you're saying, like we just started chatting because this is such a a common experience for humans, right? This fear of not belonging or or of being uncertain about where we belong. And I was sharing with you that, you know, I have shared on the podcast before that I experience a lot of social anxiety. And I think it's often about this feeling of not being sure how other people are evaluating me, whether I've done the right thing, whether I've said the right thing, whether I look the right way. And it's it's not even that I'm sure that I did badly in any of those spheres. It's, it's really just this sense of uncertainty. And what we know about uncertainty is that that is a very hard emotional experience for people to handle. We prefer certain pain to uncertain uh, lack of pain. And, and that is what research compellingly shows. And it's just so interesting how it is so omnipresent, this fear, this belonging uncertainty and how uncomfortable it is. Yeah, it's really interesting because since I talked to Jeff Cohen about this, I've been really on the lookout for this idea of belonging uncertainty. And it's when you pay attention to it, first of all, you see it everywhere in your own life. I'm noticing it with my kids when they talk about certain things, but then it gives you this framework to think about it like, oh, that's what I'm experiencing right now. And then you can kind of shift a little bit in terms of how you're thinking about it. You can think about like, oh, you know, if someone else might be feeling belonging uncertainty, can I find a way to bridge that? And and that's what a lot of his work about is like, this fundamental human experience, and then how do we bridge some of these divides that we have people? How do we create a world in which there's less of that feeling of, you know, I don't belong here. And that's part of what I love about his work too, is that he's someone who's so clearly on a mission to try to do something about this. Yeah. And I love that this was such an optimistic conversation, right? He's not suggesting that he has the solution for everything, but he does have a lot of ideas and talks about it in such a optimistic way, which I which I really love because I think it can feel like a very dark thing to be thinking about how belongingness is such a 
dominant issue in our in our culture. The other thing that I sort of on the other side, I there isn't a panacea, and he says that very clearly. And one of the things that I think it can be tempting to do is to take ideas and research, like the research that he puts forth and shares with you in this ep- in this episode, and say, okay, well, all we need to do is change the mission statement or make these small tweaks. And then it'll sort of infuse throughout our organization and people will feel a better sense of belonging. And it reminds me of something my husband was telling me that his company is trying to infuse more creativity, but they often do these sort of piecemeal things that don't really take root. And I think that is an important thing to recognize that increasing a sense of belongingness within an organization or inside of a relationship takes a lot of small tweaks over time and that it really needs to be a very deliberate process. It, there isn't sort of like a change that you can make and then all of a sudden belongingness is now available to everyone. And I actually think it's helpful to set that expectation because then you can be more effective in trying to increase belongingness in realistic ways. Yeah, it's just, it's so interesting because it really is like a cultural vibe. Even I think that example you're talking about, about creativity, it really takes this shift, this cultural shift, which is sometimes feels really big and slow to change, but it is possible. Because if you sit, if you sit there and say, hey, be more creative, or hey, start feeling like you belong here, it's like, that doesn't work. You need the whole vibe to change. And then people start to feel the impact of that. So it's it's an interesting thing to think about. And I think it's a it's a level that's really easy to ignore sometimes within psychology. Um, but that that we really need to take a look at that. Like what's happening in this particular cultural context that that people aren't feeling that way? And are there small things we can do over the course of time and big things that, yeah. that might shift? Right. So for example, if an organization has a mission statement that really very explicitly states that inclusivity and belongingness for all is really a priority, and there's still a sense that that's not taking root, then the question becomes sort of, how is that trickling down and what do we need to do? What kind of changes on the ground? How does management need to engage? You know, what are organizations like, you know, community, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, um, you know, uh, commit, uh, are there committees that could be made that could help to impart change in the organization? Are there, you know, events that could help the conversation start to take root? I just think, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of default to like one-time things to improve the way that people feel daily. And that rarely works, right? It's, it needs to, as you're saying, be more fundamental and over time. Totally. We see that all the time, right? Where if you ask someone, oh yes, I really care about inclusivity, of course, or diversity, like most people do, you know, but then but then there are still things that get in the way. It's like just saying that is not enough or having one meeting about this or something like that. And so even though this is big and and there's a lot to think about here, there's no you know quick fix solution to any of this. Um, Jeff Cohen really does offer some helpful ideas about this throughout the episode and, and kind of ends on that note of some some important things to consider. And so I hope you'll listen all the way through to the end of the episode to get some ideas for in this very hopeful and inspiring conversation. Jeffrey L. Cohen is a professor of psychology and the James G. March Professor of Organizational Studies in Education and Business at Stanford University. He received his PhD at Stanford and his BA at Cornell. 
He is a social psychologist who has published widely. His research examines the processes that shape people's sense of belonging and self-concept and the role that these processes play in various social problems using a social psychology approach. He and others have developed concrete science-backed strategies to create more welcoming spaces for people from all walks of life. And he has a new book out called Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. Welcome to Psychologists Off the Clock. Jeff, I'm so happy that you're here today. I feel like we're going to solve some of the world's problems together in this hour. Thanks, Debbie. It's great to be here. I'm sure we'll at least make a small dent. A small dent and, and share what you've been doing in your work over the years with with our listeners. Um, reading your book, I mean, I almost didn't know where to begin because there's so much really important and interesting content in there. I literally sat down to write my questions and I was like, where do I begin? Because there's so much. So I actually thought I'd begin with a quote. This is kind of paraphrased from your, your introduction. You say that the purpose of the book is to foster your own sense of belonging and foster it in loved ones, students, coworkers, and people you argue with to help others feel included and to turn everyday encounters into understanding, connection, and growth. And so, Jeff, I love this. And it also feels like a bit of a tall order that mm. you're, you're tackling here. And I'm just wondering... You know, you're a social psychology researcher. What do you think social psychology has to offer to this really, you know, important mission that you Mm. have in your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. That's really beautifully put. I think that um, social psychology's big lesson is that every situation can be made at least a little bit better, at least a little bit better. So my field is really in the business of showing how if you change an aspect of the situation, often a subtle social one, you can get sometimes very large effects on on behavior. Uh, For example, if you give people a little baggie of candy to put them in a positive mood, that increases their likelihood of helping a stranger later by, as I recall, roughly 30 percentage points. So small tweaks to the situation that we can all make can have pretty dramatic effects on behavior. Not always, but sometimes. And I kind of make this claim that, well, generally speaking, almost every social situation can be made a little bit better. And we have some power over the situation by the fact that that we're in it. And through the words we choose and and the behaviors we engage in and, and the way we engage across lines of difference, we can make the situation go a bit better, at least a little bit better, sometimes a lot. So that's the premise of the book. That's the premise of the book is the power of the situation. But as part of the situation, we as individuals share some of that power. So we have some ability to mold situations in ways that bring out our individual and collective best. At least a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've made the point on the podcast a number of times that, so I'm a clinical psychologist and so are my Mm. co-hosts. And we've made the point a lot of times that in psychology, sometimes we look too much at the individual, but we don't look at the the context or the culture, the circumstance. And I think what I love reading your book, it's not just, so it really highlights that some of the, the situational and contextual factors, but it also and we'll get into this later in the interview, but it gives some idea of like, well, what can we do to change some of this? Because sometimes it feels onerous to try to yeah. make a difference. Sometimes it feels onerous to try to make a difference. And sometimes we feel like we're not making a difference, no matter how hard we try. What I wanted to do 
is to, and what I've done in my career is to try to offer solutions. So I went into social psychology because I, I really cared about social problems. That was my sort of big, big impetus. I worked at volunteer organizations. I tutored kids. Um, so my focus in my career has been not just documenting problems, which is a, what a lot of social scientists do and useful, you know, to understand the causal basis of problems, but to figure ways to, in which uh, we can kind of intervene on them for the better. And I don't really like that word intervene, but I, I like the, maybe the word, be, the better word might be support, you know, figuring out ways to better support and empathize with people beyond the ones, you know, the business as usual techniques that we've inherited from our culture, or from our family or from each other. And, um, you know, one of the subtexts of a lot of the research is that, you know, there are a lot of things, a lot of bad things good people do, a lot of bad things good people do that in the end do more harm than good, you know, to ourselves and others. You know, and just to take one example, the tendency to judge what Lee Ross calls a fundamental attribution error, to kind of think that what drives troublesome behavior is a troublesome character to kind of go from behavior to infer like there's some underlying attitude or trait there that must explain it. Well, that's sometimes true. We really overestimate the degree to which that's true. And what we end up doing is casting blame and aspersions on people who behave objectionably to us, which actually makes the problem worse because underlying a lot of the objectionable behavior that we see in the world, I think, is a sort of uncertain and sometimes defeated sense of belonging, a sense of isolation. And, and when we engage in righteous indignation or insult or, or denigrate each other, especially those who disagree, we end up worsening the very problems that we want to solve. So that's a kind of another subtext of, of, of a lot of the research in social psychology that, you know, we're always doing these things that might not just be, you know, counterproductive, but actually... Uh, or it might not be only ineffective, but actually counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to this idea of belonging in a second. I think that's really central. But first, would you mind? So when I was reading through your book, and then also looking on your, I was pulling your bio off your website, and I was just amazed by some of the types of problems that you were drawn to looking at in your research. So could you just give our listeners a sense of some of the types of problems oh, that yeah. you and your colleagues have, have looked at? Because it's quite impressive and like inspiring actually to hear about that. Well, thank you. We, my lab, my colleagues, this is a really a team effort. I, you know, and I, I really owe a a huge debt to my mentor, Claude Steele, um, who's worked with me on a lot of these projects and Greg Walton, a close colleague uh, who helped develop some of the research on belonging uncertainty was a real pioneer is a still a pioneer in this area. Um, but the the topics span the achie- achievement gaps or opportunity gaps in education, gender gaps in in STEM, political polarization, closed mindedness, resistance to change, mental and physical illness, obesity, health disparities, empathy, uh, and like kind of little practices to help people maintain their equanimity in stressful situations and their resilience so motivation as well. So I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that's cool about being a social psychologist is that what you end up doing is showing that very heterogeneous phenomena in the visible world end up having this kind of hidden common source. And, and the hidden common source for 
for a lot of these problems is a sense of social disconnection in a lot of cases, and also a sense of psych- what we call psychological threat, a sense that myself is not safe here, which often comes from feeling like you don't belong. Of course, we're not saying that all these problems have and as their as, as, that belonging is a determinative factor, but it's a contributing factor. So much so that we uh, co-opted this term by Pete Buttigieg, the, who said that our time is a crisis of belonging, and a crisis of belonging is really apropos because it suggests that, yeah, many of the things that we're seeing in our world—political polarization, achievement gaps, extremist behavior, even violence—I think to some degree. They're symptoms of an underlying cause. And and that underlying cause is in part a kind of thwarted sense of connection that I think too many Americans have, too many people throughout the world have now. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, once we understand that, there's lots we can do about it, I think. Yeah. So what do you... So, so that concept that you've mentioned a couple times, it's so central. I want to just unpack it a little bit more. Belonging uncertainty. Yeah. And I believe that's a, a term that you and some of your colleagues coined that term. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We went yeah. back and forth on the, this term. Uh, this is Greg Walton and I uh, years ago came up with this term to describe this state of mind in which you're uncertain of your belonging. And it captures this reality that I think we all experience when we're just kind of walking on shaky eggs. We don't really know if we belong or not. We have a hypothesis that we might not. For example, you might be at work and you've heard or have reason to suspect that your boss doesn't like you. And now in interactions, you're not sure. Now in interactions, you're in belonging uncertainty. You're kind of looking at his behavior very carefully or her behavior very carefully to sort of look for signs, telltale cues as to whether or not they think negatively or not of you. Likewise, I think we experience this all the time, walking into a social gathering or a party, step through the door and tumble in. Maybe you forgot to to bring a uh, a dish for what you discover later is a potluck and you're kind of feeling all eyes upon you. You have this sense that that Nobody is looking at you, but everybody is talking about you. And it's a kind of psychology in which, you know, I think it's twofold. There's two consequences. One is that it's exhausting because you're kind of perusing the environment constantly. You're preoccupied. And do I belong? Do I not? So it's hard to kind of focus on the conversation and focus on learning. Uh, And second, you're uh, in the state of mind where little things loom large. A person might kind of smirk or look distracted, and all of a sudden, ooh, that's that's a cue that maybe I don't fit in here. And Greg and I linked this belonging uncertainty to the experience that a lot of uh, you know, underserved students experience in school or, or workers at work, ethnic minorities, where they're kind of entering an environment where their group has been historically underrepresented, and they're understandably uncertain about whether this is a place where I belong, whether I can belong, even whether I want to belong. When I was an assistant professor, I experienced this really intensely, and I think this contributed somewhat to our research where, uh, you know, I was an assistant professor, and I felt intense belonging and certainty being at this place with these academic superstars, and I really felt a lot of belonging and certainty, and I noticed at the end of the day, I'd come home, I'd be exhausted, and i think back, what did I do all day? And I'd realize, not much, except worry. So my mm-hmm. mind was in this kind of 
churn of thinking, do I belong or not? It was just depleting. Uh, people who face negative stereotypes are facing that a lot more, a lot more regularly, that, that kind of ruminative cycle that can really be sapping. And then the second thing I noticed is that like these little things would loom large, like the chair would make a comment on a class of mine. I'd be like, oh, what did he mean by that? And uh, so it's a preoccupying state of mind. And, and I think it's one that we experience a lot. All of us have this. It's kind of ironically something that unites us. It is. It's part of the human condition. I was actually thinking yeah. about it in my own life and everything from I went to an event a couple weeks ago, like a social event and, fe- and walked in and was like, I didn't see anyone I knew, but everybody else seemed to know each other. Yeah. Of course, there were a few people and, you know, it was, but my first response was, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so uncomfortable, you know, exactly. a small example like that. But then also, you know, when I went to graduate school, I've shared this story on the podcast before when I talked with Jill about imposter, we talked about imposter syndrome. Mm. And when I got to graduate school at Harvard, I felt like I didn't belong there. I felt like, who am I? I'm surrounded by all these really smart people that probably went to these, you know, great schools and have all these amazing achievements. And why am I here? You know, and and by the time I left, I felt like, okay, I can, I can do this. But I think it was, it took a long time for me to feel like I fit in there. So it's, yeah. I get what you're saying, both the micro examples, and then also the bigger, you know, these big life things that you're doing where you just Everything. feel so uncomfortable. Yeah. And you can feel so uncomfortable in that moment. You feel like you're under a spotlight sometimes, like everybody might be watching you. You know, the kind of high school cafeteria effect is kind of similar to what you're talking about. Where, oh, yeah. Like, there's no one to sit with. I feel like everyone's watching me <laughs> to see what right, I'm going right. to do. And uh, we've all been there. It doesn't stop it from being highly aversive. And one of the things that I think the research helps with, it's almost like literature in this way, is to kind of universalize that experience. So, you know, it's good to know that we all, most of us experience this. It breaks down what social psychologists call pluralistic ignorance, where we can kind of all be in the dark about what other people think, especially for these states of mind that we, and heart that we keep secret, like embarrassment, feelings of humiliation, feelings of shame. We don't share those. So it's easy to feel like, God, I'm the only one, which can kind of aggravate the condition. So um, I think like, you know, you're your 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 story there and the research is is very helpful to people to kind of you know put us all on the same same psychological page so we're you know this is a common human condition and what that means though is that we can all help each other get through these moments uh some of which are more important than others some of which are more important than others as we know you know if those first few days of work or school don't go well if you don't feel like you belong you can really slip and take a negative turn, especially in those kind of formative teenage years. So if we can make those moments go a little bit better, it could change some, at least a few people's destiny. And I think we yeah. can all play a part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the problems that you've looked at in your work is on hate crimes. And yeah. it just so happens that we're recording this episode at kind of a somber moment. I'm in Denver and just a few days ago when we're recording this, the, the episode will come out a few weeks from now, but we're recording this in the aftermath of a hate crime that happened in Colorado Springs at um, Club Q, which is an LBGTQ plus yeah. club. Um, and I, I don't know, no one seems to know much at this point about the motivations of this particular incident, yeah. but 
generally you have some 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 thoughts and theories about what motivates people to do behaviors like that yeah i mean i am not an expert on this area uh, you may be more than i because in a lot of these cases it involves mental illness like a kind of almost like a psycho, it's like a psychological fire in some of these cases that leads people to this so I, I i don't know in any particular case in a lot of cases for sure mental illness contributes um so I wouldn't want to con- I wouldn't want to talk about any particular case like this one, especially when we don't know that much about it, except to say it's, it is it is devastating and, and heartbreaking to see these things happen so often, and it really does make you want, as a citizen and as an academic, to kind of figure out how can we how can we how can we stop these things from happening? And of course, laws and policies are going to be important in that endeavor. Uh, one of the things, though, that really comes across in the research on extremists and terrorists. And, and, and here I'm talking about kind of the ordinary people who are kind of lured into extremist groups like neo-Nazi groups, um, the KKK. Uh, so not necessarily people with, with mental health issues. Um, it often begins with a need to belong. It often begins with a need to belong. And here I'm drawing on the work of Ari Kruglansky and Bruce Hoffman, who have study terrorism and extremism for decades. And what emerges is this story, which is that, you know, a lot of the people who join these groups and who later even do these horrific, engage in these horrific hate crimes, uh, but they're part of these groups, they're kind of organized groups, uh, is that the interesting thing, they don't necessarily subscribe to the ideology initially. They don't really believe in the toxic racism. I mean, they might a little bit, but they, it's, not, it's not what impels them to join. Instead, it's that feeling of being part of something bigger than oneself. I tell the story of um, C.P. Ellis, a uh, man from the Deep South in Durham, uh, North Carolina, who joined the KKK in the 70s, and he later left it. But he describes how it was just cool to be someone who mattered. He remembers kneeling before the cross at the KKK ceremony. He says, for the first time in my life, this little person felt like somebody. And so these groups are highly organized to exploit a need to belong, and they prey off of it. And they get these people who whose need to belong has been defeated, either because of economic deprivation uh, or because of fam isolation from their families, then or they might simply feel like their group, not they themselves personally, are being left behind in in society, and it's that sense of being left behind that is exactly the opposite of belonging. I mean, belonging literally means to go with. So being left behind means you don't feel that sense of belonging. That that's what often is seems at least observationally to be the kind of key driver for a lot of people to join these groups. And then once they're in there, they're impelled to do like these terrible things, starting with like small, terrible things, building up to big, terrible things, almost like a foot in the door effect. And they, they start to kind of self justify and then kind of begin to believe in this poisonous ideology as a kind of way to justify their own actions because of sort of cognitive dissonance phenomena uh, or process. So I, I think that, what I would say is that it's so easy and understandable in our society to go from bad behavior to think it means 
bad character. And yes, of course, sometimes it does. But a lot of times there's a kind of uh, more subtle mechanism at work in which people aren't beginning with bad character so much as with desperation. And they're finding some port on the shore, uh, probably perhaps the only port on the shore that, that will take them in. And uh, it's a little bit of a Faustian ba- bargain because then they have to endorse this poisonous ideology and do these terrible things in order to stay a good member of the group. So that's, I think, what a lot of the work suggests. And, and looking at, even at the research, a sense of ostracism, even a sense of loneliness is, is pretty predictive of aggression and conspiratorial thinking. And there's even lab studies that manipulate a sense of ostracism and find that people become more extremist and conspiratorial in their thinking. So, um, you know, there's a kind of um, uh, a bunch of evidence in this area, non-definitive, of course, but all suggestive of the power of a defeated need to belong in propelling people to horrific actions. Her Hannah Arendt in Origins of Totalitarianism thought that one of the reasons that the German populace was susceptible to the Nazi ideology was that they were so isolated and atomized, they were looking for something to attach themselves to. So it, it does seem to be a theme in the human condition. Yeah, it really helps me make sense of some of what we're seeing with political extremism and divisiveness, where it's kind of just hard sometimes to make sense of it. And and that does make sense. You think of people who are feeling disenfranchised, disconnected, and why would they be drawn to something like that? It, yeah. It's providing them something, right? Yeah. Disenfranchised. They feel like they don't have a voice and they're pissed. Yeah. And they're looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. Angry. And they want to yes. belong. So it's like, that's, that's kind of the recipe. Make people yeah. feel like join me, join us, and you'll have a place. And people will go along sometimes. I think I got this from your book, right? People go along sometimes with a social climate in a way they wouldn't just on their own. And and you gave an example I was really struck by. I kept thinking about this example after I read it in your book of the Jewish high school student who faced some anti-Semitism at school and her peers kind of, it just went along with it to the point where it got pretty extreme. And it was really interesting to think about that. Could you just say something about that, about like how social climate could contribute to something like bullying or yeah. racism? Yeah. I think a lot of times people are just play acting at these things or it's a, the, the line between truly believing and play acting is, is, is thin in, in that anecdote, the girl, the girl's uh, victimizers said, yeah, we were just playing. You know, when I wrote, when I was reading Mein Kampf in the cafeteria, we were just play acting. We're just, it was like a big joke. And well, from her perspective, it's not a joke at all. Like that's highly offensive. But what had happened at that school is that doing, engaging in anti-Semitism had kind of become a kind of way to be, to kind of win approval, to fit in with your peers and to kind of make these in-jokes and, and badger together. And so when finally the whole thing blew up, a lot of the the perpetrators are like, well, I don't, I, I really didn't mean it. I wasn't, I didn't feel hate, but I think in a lot of time, a lot of times, you know, it's the things we do aren't really coming from things inside of us. It's, it's a kind of bit of a performance. Social life is a bit performative and we often want to win the approval of the people in our groups. 
And that can lead us to do things that we don't really believe in uh, that can have some pretty terrible effects. And I think that's what happened in, in, in her case, uh, Rebecca's case, that she um, was kind of victimized by this sort of social contagion of a, of a norm. It had just become cool at this school for these kids to be anti-Semitic. So I think that happens a lot of time. I have always thought of this on this issue. There's a famous study by Phil Zimbardo. It's come under a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism, some justified. Uh, I, I do try to kind of save the baby from the bathwater in describing it, but there's this one encounter. Uh, long story short, he, create, he created this un, this prison in the psychology department, got you know more or less ordinary young adults to play prisoners and guards. And the simple story is that the guards became mean and sadistic and the prisoners became really passive and apathetic. Uh, of course, that's not the full story, but there were some pretty horrific instances of behavior on the part of the guards of sort of, you know, brutalizing or the, uh, brutalizing the prisoners. Anyway, after there's a famous interview between a guard and a prisoner or, or an interview between the guard and a prisoner. And the guard says to the prisoner, look, I was just play acting. This is pretend. And the guard says, well, yeah, but that harmed me. And you were really good at it. And so I think that really captures the the anecdote too about Rebecca is like, well, even if we don't mean it, even if it's coming from a desire to fit in, these kinds of behaviors can really be noxious to other people. And so mm-hmm. a lot of times when we're doing these things, it's like because of group norms, group pressures, these kind of biases that we can all fall prey to, but it doesn't mean that they're not harmful. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that social psychology tells us that's really important. It's like, we all have to be aware of this and on the lookout for it because it, we're not immune from it. It's easy to look at what happened in Germany in the Hitler era and be like, well, we would never do that. We're not like that. And it's like in the circumstances that they had people who probably, you know, if you had asked them would say the same thing went along with it. And so I think it's like, it's just helpful to be aware of these, how group norms can affect us in ways that are not good so that we're not so susceptible to it. Do you think that helps? I think that totally helps. That's, that's well put. Yeah. A little humility, a little humility would go a long way. I saw this bumper sticker that just kind of said it all. And it read, don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. And I think that captures a lot of the wisdom of social psychology that our minds play tricks on us. And we can kind of deceive ourselves into thinking we have a firm grasp on reality when in fact we don't. And there's a lot of examples of this. Um, And it's only later, maybe in retrospect, that we realize, oh, that was not my best moment. I really kind of was led astray by something. And I think being aware, like you say, I think just being aware of what we're capable of is one of the best antidotes. You know, we kind of, you know what you're capable of. In a lot of these studies that we've done, uh, my colleagues and I, we find, for instance, that one of the big predictors of bias is the degree to which people are confident in their own personal objectivity. So the people who really believe, ah, I am totally invulnerable cognitively, I am totally objective, free of any bias, actually, they're the ones who are most biased. They, we found, engage in the most uh, gender bias, gender discrimination, and in some research by my 
colleague, Michael Schwabe, we find that they're the most susceptible to fake news. They're the most likely mm. to kind of think, oh, this must be true, which makes sense because if you think that what you think is true, then anything confirms that confirms your point of view is by definition true. And so you're really um, vulnerable to believing nonsense. Yeah, that is a really good point. That's really interesting. Okay, listeners, if you haven't tried Thrive Market yet, now is the time. Not only will you get 30% off your first order and a free $60 gift, you'll be supporting us in the podcast. I don't know about you, but I found myself a lot busier lately, and mustering up the energy to schlep to the grocery store has been, well, challenging. I love that Thrive Market offers easy online ordering and the convenience of delivering our groceries straight to our door. No energy required for that. Thrive Market has also helped my family stick to our budget and health goals, too. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Just go to thrivemarket.com slash POTC for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash P-O-T-C, thrivemarket.com slash P-O-T-C. And remember, supporting our sponsors is a great way to support us and the podcast. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. You mentioned earlier your mentor, Claude Steele, who I associate with his work on stereotype threat. And I think it's a really interesting concept. And, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that is and how it applies to some of the, the problems you were talking about earlier, like the, the academic achievement gap. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the big lesson of stereotype threat is that the same situation can be experienced very differently for the different people in it. This is really hard to realize. And Claude and his colleagues, Josh Aronson and Steve Spencer, demonstrated that beautifully with in the case of the standardized intellectual test. So for, I'm going to simplify, but for white people, for instance, you know, an IQ test or, you know, the kind of academic ritual of the standardized test, is, you know, that's kind of, kind of pretty neutral, pretty normal. I'm just kind of taking it. It's, it assesses my performance and aptitude, but, you know, it, uh, it's, it's not a huge deal. I might get a little nervous, but for black students, there is an extra apprehension, which is that if I do poorly on this test, it could validate this negative stereotype about the intellectual limitations of my group. So for me, as an African-American, taking this test, the situation is psychologically a lot more dire. Now, in addition to just worrying about whether I do well for my own personal sake, I have to worry about the reputation of my group and how my performance is going to reflect on them. And and, and I also have to be thinking about the history of these tests as used as a kind of justification for the subordination of my group. And so there's like a lot of baggage for me uh, or in this test for me. And what Claude and his colleagues demonstrated was that under certain circumstances, that stereotype threat, that kind of fear of confirming the negative stereotype about one's group can 
really dramatically undermine performance. Uh, and those conditions are when the test is really, really difficult. So I'm kind of at the frontiers of my ability. I'm wondering, what does it mean that I'm struggling? And when I care about doing well, I really care about doing well. I want to do well in this test. I'm invested in it. Under those two circumstances, this preoccupation can understandably derail you. And so they demonstrated that really, really um, elegantly in, in some classic research. And I think those studies make the point that is key to uh, understanding how to cultivate belonging, which is, you know, a situation might seem totally comfortable and neutral to you, but to someone else, it might be seen as altogether differently. And there's so many examples of that. I think we've all experienced this in our lives where, wow, that encounter seemed fine. And then later on, you feel like you've discovered, no, that was not fine for the other person. Uh, or you had a teacher and you really enjoyed the teacher, but the, someone else in that classroom was like had a completely different experience. So I think that's one of the big lessons is just because the situation, uh, as you experience it, has this sort of quality, that doesn't mean it's as generalized as you think. And and that's really key to cultivating belonging and, and creating these campuses and these workplaces where all people feel at home. Now you got to think about, well, how do I create a home where these cues in the environment aren't sending bad signals to one group at the expense or at the benefit of another group? And that requires a lot of empathy and craftsmanship. You know, just to take one other example, you know, you might think that a colorblind mission statement for your company saying, you know, we just judge people by who they are and their individual merits. We pay no, we give no credence to their race or their gender or their religion. You might think that's a good thing, but actually that seems inauthentic and is offsetting to many minorities uh, because it is so, it is so dissonant with their lived reality. And so research finds that that message, while, you know, it seems pretty good to whites, is actually uh, dis discouraging and deterring to minorities uh, and their interest in, in the profession. But creating alternative, this is where the, the hope comes in. Once you're aware of that, then you can kind of create alternative situations that bring everyone into the fold. So mission statements that emphasize and value diversity and celebrate our diversity as a source of strength and say how, you know, together, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because we're all different and bringing our contributions to the larger group. Those messages work well for everyone. They work well for everyone in general. Um, so I think that's, that's how this area of stereotype threat relates to the topic of belonging. It really underscores this point that I think is so difficult for us to understand is that the way I'm seeing a situation may be very different. Workplace, classroom, home life may be very different from uh, the way other people see it, to the detriment of their belonging. Yeah, you know, and you have chapters. It's really interesting. People should pick up your book because you have chapters on belonging at school, work, in the community, politics, health. Um, it's just, there's there's a lot to think about. But this piece about the workplace and how we know that a more diverse workforce is great for people. It's great for actually workplace culture, all these things. But I love this. You said, it's not just add diversity and stir, but you need to actually really change some of the features of the workplace to make people feel that sense of belonging, right? That workplaces that have better sense of belonging have better engagement and retention with their employees. What Can you say a little bit more about what yeah. kinds of things workplaces can do to, to foster that? 
Yeah, that's Frank Dubin's uh, uh, little injunction that, you know, too many workplaces have this add diversity and stir approach, which really doesn't work. You got to kind of do, you have to craft situations, you know, do what I call situation crafting at the workplace to, you know, make it feel like a home for everyone there. And there are many, many strategies for, for doing that. One being, you know, these mission statements, I think mission statements actually, you know, they're not just words. They, they set the tone for people's experience of the workplace and they, potentially can increase the diversity of your uh, of the candidates who apply to your position. So mission statements, as we talked about, it, is one bit of situation crafting. Then when, when people are there, uh, there needs to be many things in place to kind of create that sense of inclusion. And, and there's no recipe here, but one thing that comes to mind is just simply inclusive policies. So there's some nice work by Tony Schmader's lab showing that the mere presence of gender inclusive policies, work policies, uh, such as, you know, uh, opportunities to report harassment, programs to support work-life balance and childcare, like those are not only objectively beneficial, but they're actually associated with a higher sense of belonging among female employees, at least in the sense that they don't feel stereotyped or looked down as much in light of the stereotypes at their workplace. Um, so that's that's important. Um, I also think that there are so many ways in which we could sort of take things out of the workplace for for the better for the better. Uh, one being uh, sort of this talk about how talent and genius are the kind of key drivers of success. That's been shown to be pretty off, off-putting to mm-hmm. people who have been on the outside of the field, understandably so. So you're telling me I don't have the innate talent to be here or that my group doesn't have the innate talent to be here. And in some really nice work by Mary Murphy and Andre Simpian and, and, and many others, it's been found that uh, companies that espouse this view that, you know, it's all about talent actually produce less innovative workers and, uh, and more unethical behavior among workers and, and less belonging there. So there is kind of a whole, I mean, ideally there's no, like no, so I don't think there's one quick fix, but what we're aiming at is changing the lived situations of people in the workplace so that it adds up into a culture of belonging where you're just kind of going about your daily life and you feel like, yeah, this is a home for me. And like little things will get you there. Little things like what we're talking about will get you there. But ultimately, I do think it is a matter of transformational leadership and the beliefs and the norms of the company that that are in people's hearts. And, and th- these are kind of little ways to get there. And then the final thing that I would add to that is just perspective getting. Perspective getting is so important. I heard the, I think it was one of the deans at my daughter's college said this to the incoming students. He said, if you don't feel at home, I want to know. And so you kind of invite yourself to feedback that, hey, I want to know. You you get, if, if people don't feel like they belong, you get that perspective and then you can kind of create ad hoc situational sol- solutions to to deal with it. Uh, so I think that's another really key tactic. Too many places think that there's some recipe 
for inclusion. But oftentimes it's a kind of collaborative project that involves constant discussion and back and forth and conversation. And, and you get there over time through that, that kind of mutual sharing and commitment, commitment to changing the organizational culture bit by bit. So this idea of situation crafting, I think it's really important. And it's, it's again, kind of woven throughout your book. But what you're talking about here really captures that. It's like taking a look at this particular situation, this workplace environment, and thinking, how can we craft it to foster belonging, to reduce things like that vigilance of belonging uncertainty, feeling like, I don't know if I fit in here, stereotype threat, those kinds of things. Like, how can you change this situation to make that better. That's really kind of, if you were going to describe what you're trying to do with a lot of your interventions, I think that's kind of. How do you make the situation a little bit better? Yeah. 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 How do you do that? Yeah. It's hopeful because it seems like there are things that you could do. There are things that you can do. It it is a kind of a, a craft, I think, but also, you know, an attitude and a mindset. Yeah. I mean, I I think about conversations like this a lot. I'm, I'm very interested in conversations and how they work and when they go well, when they don't go so well. And it's very hard, have you noticed, to have an inclusive conversation, like even just four people there, getting everyone feeling like they can contribute and feel like they're part. That's, that's actually very tough. So then you think, oh, how do I get a workplace or a classroom or an institution or a country to feel included? That that's That's a project. That's a project. But that's an American project because I think we're, as a society, so diverse, so wide-ranging in our sensibilities and interests and sensitivities. It's, it's a real great American predicament. And also, I think, an American skill set to create that inclusion among, you know, out of difference. And, and you know, that whole idea uh, out of many one. How do you do It's a skill. It's not just a matter. It's not just a habit of heart. It is, a, it is strategy. And I think there's a lot of science-based strategies out there now that that we can use to make things go a little bit better. And I almost look at it as kind of like protocols of politeness, right? Politeness really works. Like if you're polite to people, say please and thank you and mean it, that's actually a great way to establish connection and 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 convey regard. But there's plenty of others. And you know, I, I think that one is these, uh, another one are these um, activities like values affirmations, like just taking an interest in people's values and asking them about it. That's another way to convey, I see you and I, I, am, I am interested in you. You did some really interesting research on those values affirmations and how they, just having people do some simple exercises around that had a huge impact. You did it with students and saw how later in the year they were doing much better. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of these things are, uh, yeah. So a lot of these things are kind of helping people to do what they want to do, but aren't really having the opportunity to do. And values affirmations, this comes out of research from Claude Steele. And I did it with my close colleague, Julio Garcia, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, we were interested in this idea that if you give people the opportunity to reflect on their core values, like what it, what do I stand for? What would I die for? Just take a few moments to reflect, you know, my relationships, my family, compassion, empathy, like what is it that I stand for? That giving people the, this opportunity might buffer them against stressful situations. It kind of gives you an anchor 
right? So think, okay, this is who I am. It's like that Viktor Frankl story where Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning, he's like in the concentration camp, on the verge of cardiovascular collapse. And yet he stays in the game because he needs to finish his manuscript about logotherapy and meaning and how that is so powerful. And he's like writing bits of the book on little scraps of paper. And he claims that that kept him, kept him in the game. It kept him in the game and prevented cardiovascular collapse. And I think if we do these things, visit and revisit our core values, it can really buffer us from a lot of the stressfulness and adversity that we encounter day to day in our day to day lives that could, could otherwise derail us. And so in the study you're referring to, we just gave values, affirmation activities to uh, black students and Latino students, making that really stressful transition into middle school, like sixth grade. Like that's when, that's when, you know, things hit the fan. It's like a really- Don't remind me, I have a fifth grader right now. Just wait. (laughs) I know, I see it coming. (laughs) What happened in sixth grade? It's like kind of crazy. It's crazy. Um, So anyway, we found that giving these values affirmations to these kids at this transition was very helpful to them. It buffered their sense of belonging so that it stayed high regardless of adversity in school. The kids were got better grades through all middle school and then even years later, seven, eight years later, these kids were 20 percentage points more likely to be enrolled in a four-year college because we we kind of insulated them or protected them, or they protected themselves through this activity from the harsh gaze of stereotypes and the pressures of adolescence. They they created a, a sort of pocket or, or you know kind of protective membrane for themselves that that helped them get through and had lasting effects. I think because a lot of life is like a domino effect. You get through that tough transition to middle school, you're on a good path and being on a good path sets you up for later success, success begets success. So, you know, I, I do think that these kinds of activities can be very, very useful because they help people to, to kind of return to what they want to return to, but what they're diverted from in their day-to-day lives. And And the only thing I would, one thing I would just add is that None of these strategies are cure-alls. None of them are panaceas. There was a meta-analysis of values affirmations that found an overall positive effect, but the effect depended on context. It worked best in certain situations, particularly where students had opportunities in their school to succeed that they could take advantage of once they felt like they belonged. Um, So I do want to make that clear because I think there is a kind of sometimes a scientism to psychology these days where it's seen as getting at these inalterable truths that are static, when in fact, um, the processes that we're looking at often have effects that really depend a lot on the context in which they're in which they're done and how they're done. And um, so, I, I just wanted to kind of add that, just to make it clear that I'm not saying this is a miracle drug. These are just things that tools in the toolbox that can help help us make things go a little bit, bit better. Uh, values affirmations being one, especially in stressful situations. Yeah. And I think you're really clear in the book. It's not, I think that you're not putting the responsibility on the individuals, for instance, who are being, who are experiencing racism, like, oh, well, you just got to, you know, deal with this, you know, do this values thing or deal with stereotyped threat in a better way. It's, it's really, I mean, I think you're very clear about that, that it's not, 
you're not in a blame the victim kind of thing here. It's, it is more that sense of like, what needs to change to make this better for people? And I think that's such an important distinction. I just want to yeah. kind of highlight that. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, while we're all pushing the ball forward on institutional change and creating more opportunities for people who have been disenfranchised so long, I, we had, that's kind of, I would say, you know, the most important goal. Still, we got to deal with the cards we've dealt down on the ground. We have to have to help kids get through the situations they're in. We have to get through the situations we're in. And these kinds of um, strategies and tools can be really helpful in that endeavor. So another thing that you mentioned earlier um, when we were talking about work was this idea of perspective gathering versus perspective taking. And as a clinical psychologist, okay, I think this is really interesting because sometimes I do perspective taking exercises with my clients where I have them imagine what somebody else might be thinking or what would you say to this person or that person. And sometimes my clients even ask me like, well, why do you think my spouse said this or that? And I say, well, maybe this or that, you know what I mean? We're sort of guessing a little. And I, anyway, I, I'm rambling here, but I think that what you're, this idea is so different. So could you talk a little bit about why perspective gathering might actually be more helpful? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, I like perspective gathering. That's a good way to put it. Actually, the term that Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder use the kind of progenitors of this idea is perspective getting, Oh, Which that's is, right. Yes, I got the wrong. Is actually, I like that too. It's, it's <laughs> oh, more, thank it's you. Ongoing, Coming up right? with new terms here okay. live on the air, right? And you're kind of getting multiple perspectives, not just one. <laughs> so that um, the, and, the, and, and there are ideas that, and what they show is that we're actually really bad at taking people's perspective or imagining people's perspective, even close friends, even romantic partners, when we try to imagine what someone else is feeling or thinking or what their preferences is, are, we often get it wrong. And we are systematically less accurate than we think we are. Not only that, they demonstrate that when you ask people to like take the perspective of your spouse you know, about this upcoming vacation and imagine what they want, they actually end up being a bit worse at forecasting what their partner wants than in a control condition where they don't even make the effort. And so why, there's a lot of reasons why. One reason is that when we try to imagine another's perspective, what we often do is we kind of put ourselves in that person's situation and that can lead to all kinds of mischief. It's like, well, they might not have the same preferences as you, as, as, as you do. Uh, but the other thing that happens is, especially when the person has behaved objectionably, when we imagine, I'm going to put myself in their shoes. This person did something objectionable. Um, you know, They left the dishes in the sink and we live together. Why'd they do that? I'm going to try to imagine things from their point of view. What often happens is we, we think, yeah, you know what? They're even crazier and meaner than I thought because I know if I were in that situation, I wouldn't have done what they did. Mm-hmm. So uh, what Nick and, and Juliana recommend is perspective getting where you, you just ask people. And it's, it's sort of blazingly obvious. You, you ask people, but of course, you have to ask good questions. You can't just ask any questions. You have to ask questions that get at people's underlying value structure, preferences that aren't putting people on the defensive or just confirming your preexisting beliefs. Good questions are hard to create. 
But if you ask good questions, then people's empathy, their empathic accuracy soars. And in fact, um, you know, the other nice finding is that people don't do this on their own because they don't think it's going to buy them any empathic gains. They're like, why do I have to ask? But it turns out they should ask. So I really love that because it suggests that, you know, kind of blazingly simple antidote to many of the, the kind of misunderstandings in our world, just, you know, try to ask people in a non-confrontational way. It's tricky. And timing has to be, you know, you got to have good time. You have to, you know, you know, if my kid misbehaves, like when they were little, I, it's like, that's the, the time when they're acting out may not be the time to perspective get, but maybe later on at bedtime, it'd be like, hey, you know, you remember early in the day, it seemed like something was, what happened? What was going on there? So yeah. timing is important. So there is an art to perspective getting that I think is, is uh, worth learning. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to get a good perspective in the heat of things being really True. high emotion, right? That's right. <laughs> well, and I think that actually if you, this idea of just having these open dialogues and conversations is really essential to a lot of your work, I think, because, you know, part of helping people, you, you kind of, you mentioned this in a number of areas, I think, around, you know, people, for instance, on how white and black people in America respond to each other and political divisiveness. And, you know, we can't agree on anything anymore with our, our friends and family with different political views than ours and that kind of thing. But there is really something about helping people feel heard and understood and having that kind of dialogue that can, can move the needle. Totally. Yeah. Can be difficult, right? Can be difficult. Can be difficult. Um, yeah, it can be very, it can be very hard. It can be, especially when tempers flare, especially when you feel under threat. I mean, I would just recently, just to take an example, I was in the store, I was thinking of getting coffee and someone's like, comes up to me and they're like, uh, and I was just waiting for my coffee. Someone's like, you cut in line. I'm like, no, I didn't cut in line. I'm just waiting in line. I'm, I'm waiting off to the side, but they thought I had cut. I'm like, I couldn't help in a moment. I felt like saying something kind of retaliatory in response. Like, because I felt offended to be seen as somewhat offensive. But I didn't. I was like, no worry, I'm just waiting and kind of casually point out. I I think that these kinds of moments like that in our everyday encounters are really key. I, I see this all the time. They they even these encounters between strangers, it's like kind of spiral really quick because mm. we feel offended to be seen as someone offensive, then we attack the other person and it kind of spirals, spirals. And I think, you know, this kind of advice to turn the other cheek, even in these kind of ordinary social encounters is is really kind of a good idea because a lot of times people are, they kind of make these heat of the moment um, judgments or actions that don't really say much about who they are. So having a little patience there, I think, is is really good. And then in, in terms of um, conversations, same thing. Just don't escalate. Don't escalate. Because as soon as people get outraged or feel threatened, that's like one of the worst states in which to learn. It's one of the worst states in which to argue. You become indignant. Uh, by contrast, the only thing that I've seen in the literature that really works to reduce polarization and create lasting change across the political divide, lasting being a key adjective here, is good, empathic conversations. And this is work by David Brookman and Josh Kalla. 
was in science and they've had several subsequent publications. But to make a long story short, basically they hold conversations between canvassers and voters on many different politically sensitive issues. And what's notable or noteworthy about the conversations isn't just what's in them, but what's not in them. That they don't argue, they don't bombard the voters with facts and information. People don't like that. It kind of threatens them. People never like to be told that they're wrong or for that to be insinuated. Instead, what the canvassers do is they have a conversation. They listen, they ask good questions, they engage in a lot of perspective getting, and critically, they share stories that are relevant to the political issue that they're talking about. And this is the only thing that that I've seen that works. It's only a 10-minute conversation, but it has enduring effects on people's uh, political attitudes, um, you know, even in the context of presidential elections and sensitive issues like transgender rights and immigration. Uh, so I think we need more kind of conversations like that, where we're just kind of, the, the word conversation actually means to turn over together. You're turning over an issue together. I love that. You're kind of, it's almost like you discovered an object on a trail. You're just kind of looking it over together to figure it out. And that's what a conversation is at its best. I think we need so many more of those. Too much of our lives are being dictated or being, uh, of our political relationships are being defined by these pundits, media pundits, and, and politicians who are trying to get us to villainize one another, see, think in us, them terms. Uh, and, and that's just going to, that is corrosive and, you know, and just undermines the opportunities for these kinds of connections that could really bridge divides if, if they happen. Um, so part, a lot of the, a lot of what we're talking about here is finding little ways, all, all, and all of us can just to fight back against the larger culture, the noxious elements in the culture, and that includes the media and the social media. That includes cultural biases like the fundamental attribution error. It includes stereotypes. Each of us. I love Irving Goffman, the famous sociologist. He would see in the minutia of everyday encounters a moral battleground. And so I do really feel like in these like little encounters across lines of difference, we can make a choice. We can be inclusive and open and curious and really believe that there's something in the other person worth hearing, or we can go on the offense. And I think that unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, going on the offense and being righteous and indignant and threatening ultimately does more harm than good and actually undermines, ironically, undermines our ability to kind of send the message we want to, to promulgate. And that, that applies both to the left and the right, I think. Well, that's a beautiful note to end this conversation on. Very inspiring and actually perfect timing because when this episode comes out, it'll be right in the middle of the holidays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Oh, and perfect. so there'll probably be plenty of opportunities for bridging family divides. I know. I think we should do a study. Talk to Uncle Joe at the table and, and have <laughs> maybe the conversation go a little better this That's time right. around. That's right. Maybe it was just a little better. That's actually brilliant. <laughs> uh, well, so again, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. The title of your book, again, is Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. What's your website? Because you have some of your exercises and articles and that kind of thing up there. Yep, that's right. It's uh, jeffreylcohen.com. So just my name, uh, but spelled- Jeffrey with a G. Jeffrey with a G. Yeah, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-L Cohen, C-O-H-E-N.com. So just my name without any, any periods in it. 
And one thing that's kind of cool, I was checking this out on your website earlier, is that you have some different exercises for different ages. So if you have kids, I'm going to try some of them out with my kids. I think if you're a teacher and you have students or something like that, you can put some of these into practice and there's some for adults and then also some for younger people. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're like, we have like a little, if anyone wants to submit their own, that would be great too. It's a, you know, we're, they, they can be tweaked and, and, uh, and changed. So, you know, there's a lot of room for creativity. Great. Well, thank you again so much. It was really a pleasure you, talking Debbie. to you today. Yeah, likewise. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a great conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, take care. Hey, Psychologists Off The Clock listeners. I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode, that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.